Every year, the Pritchard Committee for Academic Excellence meets to discuss ways we can promote vastly improved education for more Kentuckians to improve quality of life and decrease long-standing poverty. This year's meeting is virtual because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we're presenting interviews with our annual meeting speakers via YouTube. We hope this provides an opportunity for all our members to tune in and many other Kentuckians as well. The theme for this year's meeting is mobilizing Kentuckians for a big, bold future. Achieving this big, bold future requires a groundswell of deepened civic engagement and an enhanced understanding of the future of work and our economy. Rich Harwood has spent over 30 years helping communities solve shared problems and create a civic culture of shared responsibility. He's worked in the hardest hit communities, transforming the world's largest organizations and reconnecting institutions like schools to society. Recently, Rich completed work in Clark County, Kentucky and has just started a project in Fayette County. Rich joins me to talk about mobilizing communities around a shared vision and developing healthy civic culture. Rich, thank you so much for joining us as part of our annual meeting this year. Um, it's a pleasure to have you um, with us here from Maryland, um, talking with us about civic engagement, your work in building civic culture over more than three decades now. Mm -hmm. As you know, I've shared with you that the Pritchard Committee is working to mobilize a new generation of citizens to improve education outcomes all across our state. So this conversation with you is timely now, before COVID, but now coming out of COVID, when our communities need to be at the table more than ever. So as we launch into our discussion today, um, I, I want to start off with a question that I know you use in your work so often when you meet with communities. As I've had the opportunity to engage with your work over the last four to five years, I've been impressed at how you always help folks tap into their aspirations for their community as a way to ignite passion and energy for change. So I'd like to start our interview today off by asking about your aspirations for community life across the US. Well, first, let me say thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be part of your annual meeting and, and all the work that Pritchard is doing. And I've been a great admirer of the committee's work for, for years now. Um, my aspirations, you know, it's interesting. We're in the middle, I'm in the middle of doing a national study on the mood of America. And one of the things that people tell me over and over again that they've been telling me in these conversations we've been holding all across the country is that they want a sense of connection. They want a sense of belonging, that they yearn for a sense of community, that they desire to be validated, to be accepted, to be seen and heard. And so my aspirations for American life for communities today is how do we create a more equitable, fair, just, inclusive and hopeful society, not just for some of us, but for all of us, for all the types of Americans that I've been engaging in this study all across the country. And to do that, it seems to me, we've got to understand really what matters to people. We have to really address the fault lines in American society and our communities and strengthen the civic culture at the same time. We have to be hell-bent on creating impact that really makes a difference in people's lives that just doesn't look good or sound good or make us feel good about our work, but actually creates an impact in people's lives. And I think importantly for the Institute's work and 
for my own aspirations for communities and, and for America, is that we engender a sense of civic faith, a sense that we believe in ourselves and in one another, and that we have the, the wherewithal, the know-how, the wisdom to come together um, and make a difference in each other's lives. So those are, those are some of my aspirations right now. And that faith piece, Rich, that you mentioned is really core, is the root bed of our democracy in so many ways that we put faith in one another and in our community life to become something bigger than the sum of our parts. You know, we can't go it alone and be on our own. And for too long, so many people, let's say in, in Kentucky, folks who have lived in coal country, who feel as though they've been left out and left behind with no opportunities moving forward, folks who suffer from meth and opioid crisis, feel left out and left behind. Folks who are going to, as you know well, uh, schools where not every student, despite the aggregate data that tells us some of our schools are doing really well, if you disaggregate the data, you can see that there are inequities and disparities and that too many of our children really don't have a fair shot at America's promise and don't have a fair shot at fulfilling their God-given potential. We've got to work on these things and we've got to double down on the challenges that we face and act on people's aspirations to create a better lives for themselves, their neighbors and their communities. Rich, as you know, the Pritchard Committee grew out of a commitment to mobilizing citizens around a shared vision in the 1980s. In fact, the committee's founding executive director, Bob Sexton, entitled his book, Mobilizing Citizens for Better Schools. Bob referenced your work as being influential in his own thinking. What have you learned over the last three decades about how communities successfully drive change and improve quality of life locally? Well, first, I think we've got to focus on what really matters to people. And too often, you know, as you know well from, from your work, too often we impose solutions from the outside. Too often we think there's a one size fits all. Too often we think that a best practice that worked in one community can just be imported and, and plugged in in another community. And we, you were just asking about the faith in ourselves. When we do these things, we diminish our faith in ourselves and in one another. We create frustration. We create cynicism that somehow we've lost control over our lives and our ability to shape our own futures. So in order to move forward, I think we've got to focus on what matters to people. We've got to um, strengthen the civic culture of communities. Uh, and we've got to ensure um, that we're doing the work in a way that grows our civic faith. And all of these things are really critical, important to moving forward. And that is all grounded in relationship, deep relationships and the ability to communicate with one another. Yeah, you know, one of the things we talk about in our work is a civic covenant that we need to strike or restrike a civic covenant in our local communities and in the country. And covenants are relational. They're not programmatic. They're not based on initiatives. They're not based on strategies. We need all those things. Don't get me wrong. Those are the forms in which our work um, takes, takes root and grows. But at the heart of these things are relationships about whether or not we see and hear one another, about whether or not there is trust in our communities, about whether or not we have a shared sense of common purpose. And all of these things, I think, are rooted in relationships and, and are at the fundamental core of how of what enables us to live together and what enables us to work together and what enables us to create a better future together. 
Rich, both of our organizations were founded in the 80s. So we've been through decades of work now, you at the national level, the Pritchard Committee here in Kentucky. We've seen changes over time. And I can look back now as a leader at the committee's documents and see both things that are um, a thread that come into the future and things that have really changed. Um, how has community life changed in what you're finding? Um, what is different? What do communities need today that's different than when you started this work? And what is the same? Yeah, let me start with what's the same is, if that's okay. And I, when I think sure. about this, I immediately think about, you know, in the 1990s, when I was just in my 30s, um, I was working in Flint, Michigan. In, the 19, in, in 2000, I was working in Mobile, Alabama. In, um, later on, I was working in Youngstown, Ohio in my 50s. And, you know, when I look at the threads from all of that work and the struggle that the Institute has been engaged in um, since that time, there's some things that are same, which is that people want to be seen and heard, that people want a fair shot at America's promise, that we, uh, that we need to come together um, if we're going to create the types of progress that we want to see in our communities. Those things haven't changed at all. What has changed is that compared to, let's say, 30 years ago, we have less faith in our leaders than we did then. We have less faith in the civic organizations that make up our lives and our communities than we did then. We have less faith in one another than we did then. We have a growing sense of inequity and disparities in our communities. Now that always existed in Flint or in Mobile or in places in Kentucky, but I think our awareness of it and our recognition of it, and perhaps our willingness to engage with it, I'm not so sure about that, um, is different today than it was 30 years ago. So the question now becomes for us, given the current conditions, are we willing to step forward are we willing to unleash our, marshal our collective resources and unleash our potential to act on these challenges? Or will we re further retreat into our fractured lives and hunker down and, uh, and put blinders on? And I think that's the fundamental challenge that we face. So with that in mind, Rich, how have the increased calls for racial equity and justice, our evolution of understanding of uh, racial inequity and injustice impacted how you think about or design your approach to engaging communities? Well, again, in some ways it, it hasn't changed because in some ways this has been the work of the Institute well before these issues were on the, the societal radar screen in a sense. And we were often criticized for it, as I'm sure Pritchard was in some ways, right? That we insisted that all voices be heard, that we insisted that all people had dignity and that was non-negotiable. It was not, it was a non-negotiable birthright. That we insisted that we, if we move forward, that we all had to move forward together and that we shouldn't leave anyone behind, that none of us should be left behind. Um, that we insisted that we had to see our innate capabilities to move forward. And that regardless of your station in life, we all have the ability to create a better life and be part of creating that life. Now, those things haven't changed. What has changed in terms of equity and injustice is, as I said before, uh, 
is our recognition of it, is the sense of urgency to address it, um, is the energy in society and the, the sense of aggrievement that so many people genuinely and legitimately feel that we have given lip service to these issues for far too long. And so I think in our work, the question now becomes, how can we ensure that the, these issues remain front and center? How can we ensure that, you know, Lexington, for instance, where we're doing work, there seems to be a plan for equity and inclusion at each turn. The question is, will we act on it? Will we come together and marshal our collective resources? Will we, will we commit ourselves to it over the long term, not just in the short term, while these issues have, are on the front page of the newspaper or leave the evening newscasts? But long after they leave the front page or the evening newscast, will we stay committed to working on these issues? And we, will we organize ourselves in such a way that we can actually have a genuine impact and grow civic faith? That's changed. That's a challenge to us. And what I can say is the Institute, much like Pritchard, um, is doubling down our efforts to make sure that we don't walk away from these, that we don't walk away from these issues. Yeah, that sustained approach is so important in building that faith. Absolutely. And you know, there are too many efforts. I, I don't know about you, but as I've gotten older and uh, my hair has turned gray. Uh, I look, won't admit to that one yet, Rich. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm just sick and tired of, of groups coming into communities or groups working in communities where we have this kind of one and done attitude, where we think if we just issue a report that somehow we've made enough of a difference. If we simply launch a new initiative with great fanfare, but then two years later, because some grant cycle changes, we change with the grant cycle and leave that initiative behind. That we believe that if we, as I said before, import some best practice or some collective approach from some other community and believe that we can just sort of superimpose it on this community where we live and work, that somehow that's gonna do the trick or if somehow we just bring in enough consultants from outside and pay them enough money um, that somehow they're gonna fix us. I don't know about you, but I am so sick and tired of those efforts. And um, yeah, so yes, the question is, one of the questions is, will we really commit ourselves to these issues? Will we, will we really take an approach that I often say how we do the work is as important as what we do? So how we do the work, will we really commit ourselves to this? And will we approach the work in a way that helps to build the capacity and the strength of communities so that we can sustain our efforts over time and grow them and expand them? And so if they spread like a positive contagion as opposed to dying on the vine, like so many of our efforts in communities. And local community ownership then is so critically important. And, you know, rich listeners can hear the passion rise in you as you talk about the importance of that local community ownership, that none of us can fly into a place and fix it. Um, it's about people in community um, identifying solutions to the issues that they see need to be worked on. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, even the word fixed, you know, we, we have this notion in our mind that somehow people want to be fixed. 
that somehow they're like a broken car and they just need to drive them into the into the mechanic shop and leave them there for a day and they'll be fixed. That's how we often think about education. Let's just, you know, send our kids off for a day and somehow they're going to come back fixed. Well, no one wants to be fixed. What people are in search of, you asked me about aspirations earlier. What people's aspirations are all about is that they're seeking to create a life. They're seeking to create something in their own lives. They're seeking to create something, as you said, in their own communities. They're the owners of that. They're the co-owners of their communities. They're the co-producers and co-creators of their communities. And so I'm a firm believer that, you know, while the Institute works with communities all across the country and, and our work has spread to 40 countries around the globe, that these aren't our communities. We're just in support of the people who live in these communities and make them their own. And it's, it's up to them to decide what matters to them. It's up to them to decide what solutions really will work for their community. And it's up to them to implement those solutions and make a difference. Hopefully they can leverage our work to do that, but it's their community, not ours. Rich, in the last few years, we at the Pritchard Committee have been working to mobilize a new generation to continue to improve education outcomes locally. Two years ago, we launched the Groundswell Initiative to invite Kentuckians to be part of this work. Groundswell is now 1,300 Kentuckians strong, and we have multiple examples of community-based efforts to improve a specific outcome, like kindergartners being ready for school, um, or high schoolers um, being supported as they transition into a post-secondary environment. What advice would you give to Groundswell members about how to engage their community to realize the improvement thereafter? Yeah, well, first I would say congratulations to those folks who are involved in it because it sounds like they're doing great work. And so if I could modestly make some suggestions, they would, they would be these. There are lots of things I'd like to say, but there are probably three things that that maybe are worth focusing on. One is always remember, because it's so easy to skip, that we've got to know what really matters to people in their lives and what kinds of lives they're trying to create. We make, I was just talking to some folks in another in some communities about pre-K work, and they just assumed that if they built it, people would come, mm -hmm. but they really didn't know what really mattered to people and what some of the challenges were in their lives and what they were really looking for. And so I would say, first of all, always stay focused on what matters to people, always start there. Second, it's really important. It sounds like the Groundswell folks are doing this. We've got to do things, right? It's not just enough to talk. All the literature says that we gain a sense of agency. We gain a sense of belief in ourselves and in one another. We gain a sense, as you said before, that we're part of something larger than ourselves. This sign of kind of civic awe, civic energy um, by doing things by coming together and doing things together, we become builders and producers and partners in the work. So what I would say is bring people together to do things, just don't do it by yourself. Yeah. Because even if we move the needle on educational metrics, it doesn't necessarily mean that we've grown people's faith in themselves and one another. And that's critically important. And then the last thing I would say is, again, how we do the work is as important as what we do, not only try to, try to address the fault lines in your local communities, the important issues, but seek to strengthen the civic culture of your communities so that you're building something that can, that can spread and that can be leveraged and used to continue to address other challenges in the community as you move forward. And then in fact, strengthens the ties and the relationships that we were talking about earlier 
that I think are so critically important to American life right now. Rich, if I'm a groundswell member in Eastern Kentucky, um, how, how do I measure whether or not I'm being successful? How do, I, how do I know I'm approaching this work in a way that will be successful before I get to maybe the ultimate outcome I'm after? How do I measure success? Yeah, well, I think there are a few different ways, and it'll echo things I just mentioned. One is, you know, do you know what really matters to people? One way to measure that success is if I put ask you to stand on a table in front of 300 people in your local community in Eastern Kentucky, and you reflected back to them, not about your programs, not about your strategies, not about your budgets, anything like that. But if I ask you to simply reflect back to them their aspirations for their lives and what matters to them, their concerns, the things, the people that they trust, the signs of hope that they would need to see to see progress, could you do it? Mm. Would they believe you? That's one sign of success. That's a, you know, I can tell you all sorts of technical ways to gauge that, but this is a gut level check and there's nothing like that gut level check. And people will tell you whether or not you understand that. So if you understand that, you're on your way. You haven't gotten there, but you're on their way. Second, I would say, are you, can you say that you're developing strategies that actually tie back to what matters to people and can you draw a direct line? And if you showed people that direct line, would they say that that would matter in their lives? And then third, I would say is, are you helping to create more leaders, more trusted organizations, more spaces where people can come together and get things done together as you're doing this work. You can measure all of those things along the way. Mm. And I think it might be important here to note that um, as folks think about work at the community level, that it may be important to think about their sphere of influence. Because it could be, you know, the it could be their Sunday school class, it could be the football team, it could be the entire community or the rotary, but all of those levels of influence are important. We have a wonderful example of um, a parent leader in Western Kentucky who identified her sphere of influence as her um, her boys' football team. Yeah and knew that those boys, those, uh, those fellow players were not getting everything they needed to transition after high school. And so she launched an effort with those parents, families and kids to better support them. That was her sphere of influence yeah. and where she was able to realize positive impact. Boy, is that an important point. You know, in the Institute's work, we talk about your sphere of influence all the time. And people think that somehow they've got to create this huge comprehensive change all on their own. And what we say to folks is, you know, we have these four mantras, uh, two of which is get in motion. And the third, second is another is start small to go big. And always start where your sphere of influence is. And, you know, one of the things in the work that we do that we find is that people are always looking for a sense of permission in a sense that it's okay to start small. It's okay to start with that football team. It's okay to start with your church group. It's okay to start even with some internal change with some group that you're working in. And what you're trying to do is unleash a chain reaction that can grow over time, but you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. And I would much rather see people start small in their sphere of influence and grow it then pretend that somehow we're going to create this big comprehensive change and those efforts just die and they stall out 
and they create frustration and citizen cynicism in our communities. And so, yeah, um, exerting the discipline to start in your sphere of influence is really critical. So Rich, you touched on ensuring that voices across the community from all areas of a community or a sphere of influence are lifted up. Oftentimes as a statewide organization, as we work in communities through our members, those appointed uh, leaders are chosen to be at the table. How do we ensure that underrepresented voices are part of the conversation and that um, all types of folks are empowered as leaders? You know, look, I think we have to insist on it. And what I would tell folks who are listening is that many of those leaders around those tables um, may never want to hear the voices of folks um, throughout our communities. And so if we're waiting for them to give us permission, if we're waiting for them to give us the green light, uh, that's a big mistake. We have to take it upon ourselves to go out and engage people throughout our communities. And again, this goes back to standing up on the table to ensure that we can reflect the different voices in our communities. And we have to work at it to ensure that we're engaging folks from all walks of life, from all stations in life, um, from throughout our communities. And what that means for folks who are trying to do that is that you can't do it alone. You're gonna to have to form relationships, going back to something we talked about earlier, and partnerships with other folks in the community who have credibility in those communities who can help you engage those different voices uh, in an authentic, real, and deep way. And then last point, if I can make this, then as we gather up that those voices, what we would call that public knowledge in communities, we have to bring it back to those tables and we have to help illuminate these voices and lift them up so that decision makers and others in the community can hear them and so that people in the communities can see and hear themselves and see that they have a sense of agency and the ability to affect change themselves. You use a phrase in your practice called turning outward. Define that phrase for us, How, unpack turning outward. Well, first I would say turning outward is a mindset. It's a disposition, it's a stance uh, about are we turned inward or are, towards ourselves or our, our own organizations, our own strategies, or are we turned outward toward the community? And that sounds really ob obvious, Bridget, but so many of us are habitually reflexively turned inward. And the more stress we're under, the more we have to create impact in communities. All of our studies and all of our work shows the more inward we turn, the more self-referential we become. And so we've got to change our orientation and turn outward. So if I can, let me just expand on this. You know, for us, there are really four parts to this, right? One part is this faith part we were talking about, which we call civic faith, which is our work is rooted in a philosophy that people matter, that we have innate capabilities in our communities, that we have a choice about what kind of hope we create, whether it's false hope or authentic hope. And that this turning outward practice that we teach people, the second part, is a way to actually make civic faith real for us to grow it and engender it. And so this turning outward practice is a mindset and then a set of practices about how do we understand what matters to people? How do we develop strategies that are rooted in the community? How do we bring people together to bridge divides? How do we decide who to run with? How do we create shared narratives that are can-do spirit, rooted in can-do spirit, and that are authentic and real? 
And then two other parts, a third part of this is about how do we create change? So we have a part that we call how change happens. And there, our philosophy is, as I said before, don't start big, but start small to go big. And you know, I just released a new book on this called Unleash, which is how do we unleash a chain reaction in a community so that it doesn't die and diminish, but grows over time and spreads like a positive contagion in a community. And then the last part for us, which I think is really critical and really critical to this conversation, is how do each of us show up? You know, we can talk all we want about philosophy and strategies and practices and but ultimately, I think each of us has a fundamental choice we have to make, which is, are we going to show up? Are we going to show up in a turned outward way? Are we, you know, in the, I'm a person of faith in the Bible, my three favorite words are here I am. Are we going to step forward and make ourselves visible? Are we going to account for who we are and the actions we take? And I think, I think how we show up is really critical and something, something we have to really work on together. Rich, you mentioned your books, um, the most recent one, and you have another one that came out a few years ago. You describe, I think in both, characteristics of healthy communities or civic culture. Share a few of those characteristics with us and what they look like in communities like Clark County and Fayette County here in Kentucky, where you are and have been doing work. Yeah, so in Winchester and Clark County, we're, we worked for a number of years. Let's just use that as an example, because. It's so concrete and real. You know, when we started working there, the community was divided by race, by income, by, by faith. There was an opioid and meth crisis. Um, people didn't believe change was possible. They were looking back to their past and, as opposed to their future. And so to strengthen their civic culture, they acted on all those challenges. But what you could practically see in terms of their civic culture changing was, and we could measure, was that at one point when we started, there were very few leaders that people trusted. As our work progressed, there were many leaders that people trusted. When we began, there were very few organizations that span boundaries that people trusted. When our work continued and spread, there were any number of organizations that people could point to and, uh, and, and say they trusted. When we started, as I said, the community was divided. People didn't believe that public conversations mattered that their voice mattered, that anything would happen. As our work progressed, those norms changed and people began to believe that actually they could come together and talk about hard issues like implicit bias and racism, like the opioid and meth crisis, like education, things that were taboo before. They could now talk about, talk about productively and take action. When we started, there was limited shared sense of purpose and a limited sense of can-do spirit. As our work progressed, that sense of shared purpose grew. We could identify it, people could name it. And this new narrative began to grow and take form. Last point on this, let's fast forward to COVID long after our work ended. Before, when we, before we started, that community would never have come together to deal with COVID and the systemic challenges that that community faced. Now, when they face COVID, 60 representatives from 60 organizations or so came together to meet twice a week virtually to deal with systemic healthcare issues, to deal with systemic education issues, 
to deal with systemic issues around homelessness and people being evicted, to deal with systemic mental health issues. And that would never have happened before. And so that's another way to sort of gauge what the changes that were actually taking place in that community. And that undergirding that was a, shifted, a shift in civic culture about trust, about relationships, about people's willingness to come together, about people's ability to talk about hard issues, about people's ability to take action together and move forward as a community. And that's a great example of that community fabric, community faith, um, providing resiliency as a community, a state, a nation, um, uh, enters times of conflict, of trauma, of discord. Um, having that community fabric, that civic fabric there is so important. Right. And what's really critical that I have to say is that um, if, you know, for folks who know Winchester and Clark County, they would say, well, you know, the community is still wrestling with deep problems. It's still struggling. And I'd say, damn right it is. It takes time to create change. And that's one of the things I think we need to, to know about working in communities. There is no quick fix. There is no magic solution. There is no, as I said before, no consultant you can bring in from the outside to fix all these things. It's hard work and we have to keep at it. And, we, and, and that's why how we do the work is as important as what we do because the work we do has to have the ability to grow and be sustained over time if we really wanna make a difference. And Rich, I think one of the things that comes through in your work, um, for me especially, is not to be afraid of the struggle. Yeah. How you work through the struggle with others is what's important. Um, not being afraid of the struggle is important and staying at the table in the ring, wherever it might be to work through those issues is so important. And you're saying Winchester Clark County is an example of where that is happening. And that's okay. Rushing to reconciliation is not a long-term sustainable fix. No, and, and you're so right that, you know, I, this is about how we show up, right? This is sort of like, here I am, I'm ready. You know, you're, I'm being called to do something. I think we're all called to do this work, those of us who do this work. It's, it's more than a job for folks, and it's more than just being a volunteer. You know, people join Groundswell, for instance, because they feel called to do this. I'm sure of that. And, and what I say to folks in our work is, you know, don't lean away from these challenges, lean into them. Don't try to go around inflection points and the hard struggles that we face, lean into them. And the more you lean into them, the more you realize that you don't have to fear them. The more you lean into them, you realize, yes, they're hard. The more you lean into them, yes, you realize that people have sorrow and have pain and have regrets and are angry and enraged sometimes. But the more you lean in, the more, the more alive you become and the more alive others become and the more awake we become. And as that starts to occur, the, the greater our ability is to actually see things and deal with them and work on them together. And that's where we gain a sense of possibility and hope. Rich, this has been such a treat um, for, for me to have this conversation with you on behalf of the Pritchard Committee and to bring this conversation to our membership and to so many other Kentuckians who will hear it um, to spark, again, something greater than the sum of our parts. Um, and so before I ask my final question, because I want to give you the last word, um, I just want to 
just offer such a heartfelt thank you for you spending this time with us and sharing your decades of work um, to help us be better here in Kentucky. I can't think of a better place to be right now. So thanks, thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. So my last question, Rich, as we wrap up our interview, I'm again thinking back to one of your annual summits, which I attended. It was at President Lincoln's summer home where he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. The theme of the summit was Our Better Angels, quoting Lincoln's first inaugural address in reference to the better angels of our nature. What gives you hope in this moment on this horizon that we will realize a better future for the next generation? You know, in, in, in Lincoln's first inaugural, he also said we must not break our bonds of affection and we must be friends, not enemies. And what gives me hope moving forward is that as I talk to people in communities, so it's, it's people is, is really the answer. People give me hope and they give me hope because as I engage with them and listen to them and watch them, like folks in Winchester and Clark County, and folks in Lexington and Fayette County, there's, you know, there's evil in the world and there are bad actors in the world and make no mistake about it, they exist and it, it exists. But there is such innate goodness in people, in so many of us, in the vast, vast majority of us. There is such a yearning to be connected with one another and to be part of something larger than ourselves. There is a desire not to hunker down and retreat from one another and to be enemies, but a desire to bridge divides, to create a culture of shared responsibility and to create a community that communities that are inclusive. I, I'm not making that up. This is what people tell me. This is what I see people acting on. And so what gives me hope is that over the generations of our country, while we started by enslaving people and running Native Americans violently off their land, and where women didn't have the right to vote, that generation after generation, we have improved ourselves and we are not a perfect union, but we have always worked to make this imperfect union a little more perfect, as Lincoln talked about. And, and that gives me hope that, that, we, that we can do it. Now, my last point would simply be, we are custodians, we are stewards now of being this generation. And the question is for those of us now is will we grab the mantle of this generation to ensure we continue this progress, that we deal with issues of inequities and disparities and of hurt and sorrow and pain and do it in a way that really understands and acts on people's shared aspirations for the types of lives they're trying to create, the types of communities they're trying to create and the type of America they're trying to create. And that's what gives me hope. Rich Harwood of the Harwood Institute, thank you so much. Thank you.